All right, well, we are in Matthew 12, and uh, been warning you about Jesus' dialogue with the Pharisees. Looking forward to that. And we really begin today, and Jesus really knows how to pull it off, knows how to make friends with the Pharisees. And, uh, but it's, it's good. And uh, yeah, so why don't, we, why don't we stand up and I'll read the word of God to you. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, Your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? And I say to you that in this place, there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they, they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? Then he said to them, what man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. Father, we love you, and Lord, we thank you, um, not only for the teaching of Christ, and we want more of that, but we, Lord, we thank you for his example, his, uh, his example in defending the weak, Lord, in showing mercy, um, navigating conversation, and uh, we just pray, Lord, that you would grant us the same convictions the same skill, the same understanding. And uh, so Lord, we thank you, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. All right. Well, if you would, let's look back at verse one. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. Now, in Israel, even to this day, uh, it's legal to glean in someone else's field. Uh, you're not allowed to go into their field with a container, a bucket, a bag, or anything like that and start picking and taking what you want, but you are allowed to pass a field, a vineyard, or whatever, and uh, take a handful of grapes uh, to eat what you want and then to leave. And uh, so according to that particular law, the disciples have entered a grain field. They've plucked heads of grain. Uh, they've rubbed it in their hands. 
and they've blown the chaff off and they've been eating it, perfectly legal. Or was it? It says, and when the Pharisees saw it, and you notice this about the Pharisees, they're always lurking in the shadows, watching every detail uh, of everyone. And uh, they're not looking for anything but violations of the law. These make for just real pleasant, fun people, okay? So to the Pharisees here, it says, when the Pharisees saw it, they, uh, they said to him, to Jesus, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So to the Pharisees, there's no violation of the gleaning law by what the disciples were doing, but they did actually see, according to their understanding, their tradition, three violations of the sabbatical law. You see, by plucking heads of grain, they're harvesting. It's, it's a minute miniature harvest. By rubbing the heads of grain in their hands, they were threshing, and by blowing the chaff away, it was considered winnowing. That is all recorded in the Talmud, the, the Jewish traditions, their interpretations of the law of Moses. Now, under normal circumstances, harvesting, threshing, winnowing were unlawful on the Sabbath. As you know, God's covenant with Israel contained a Sabbath rest. And the details of it are big, but here's the gist of it. Exodus 31, God said, work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. What a serious matter the Sabbath was to God. And then when we look at the example in Numbers chapter 15, verses 32 through 36, we find this real story that demonstrates that every actual real violation of the Sabbath was a capital offense. It was a big deal. A man, right after the law was given, presented to Israel, laid out, he was out on the Sabbath gathering uh, firewood. And according to the law, he was supposed to be doing all of that the day before in preparation for the Sabbath. Okay, all of your, your food preparations, all of that stuff was to be done on Friday before sundown so that Saturday, which is the Sabbath, and mind you, the Sabbath has never been turned into Sunday, by the way. Uh, there's no record of that anywhere in Scripture. Saturday, the, the Sabbath is Friday at sundown, Saturday to sundown, okay? So before sundown, all preparations had to be made on Friday so that on Sunday you could rest and eat what was prepared, burn the firewood, potentially, depending on... I don't want to get too deep into some of that. If, if you want to be uh, confused or uh, if you want good material to go to sleep with, read the Talmud, okay? Uh, they took... The, the, the ancient Jews looked at the law of God which records some 300 laws, and they more than doubled it. And uh, they just expanded on everything. So here in our story, the Pharisees are actually accusing the disciples of something that is worthy of death. This is a serious accusation. If true, they, they are committing a serious crime. But Jesus has some comments. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and he and those who were with him. So have you not read 
So Jesus actually here in this dialogue begins with a stinging rebuke. I know that if you were to say that to some people, they would say, well, maybe I haven't read. But he's talking to those who are considered the Bible scholars of the day. This is their expertise. This is their bread and butter. And Jesus says, have you not read? Now, he knows that they're familiar with the story that he's referencing. But what they did was they failed to to make the correlation uh, between what David did and what the disciples were doing now. So to these supposed Bible scholars, Jesus throws their understanding of the Bible into question. Are, Are you not familiar with your own field of expertise? If you were, you would not be condemning the innocent. Okay. Jesus says how he, that is David, entered the house of God, at that time the tabernacle, and he ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. So Jesus, this is interesting, he refers back to the Old Testament, but not to the letter of the law. He doesn't refer back to Exodus, okay, where he and the Pharisees might argue over who has the best interpretation of sabbatical regulations. Rather than arguing over interpretation, Jesus provides a biblical example of someone that they highly respect, which is David, to demonstrate that there are exceptions to the law. He shows that there are human circumstances that supersede or suspend the letter of the law. Now, in 1 Samuel 21, where Jesus is referencing, David was on the run from Saul. And he had nothing with him. And when he came to Nob, where the tabernacle was erected, he asked Ahimelech, the priest, for some bread. They had no food with them. They were hungry. And they were on the run. But the only food on hand was the showbread. Now, when you come into the temple, you were in the, the, uh, inside the court there. You had the, <clears throat> the, the, the brazen altar. You had the, the, the altar of burnt offering. And then you would enter through the first curtain and on your right hand side was a a golden table and on it were two stacks of bread called the show bread in what we call the holy place of the temple. Only one place deeper than that was holier than that, which was the holy of holies. This bread in, in the scripture says that this is most holy to the Lord and only the sons of Aaron were permitted to eat it, and they had to eat it in a holy place. They couldn't like grab the showbread and then go home with it. They had to eat it somewhere inside the temple complex. It was most holy to God. And even though David was not a son of Aaron, Ahimelech, the priest, gave the bread to David, and he ate it. An exception, an exception was made by the priest. Why? Why? Well, what was it that David and the disciples of Jesus had in common? Hunger. Hunger. It says they went through the grain fields on the Sabbath and they were hungry. David and his men came to Ahimelech at Nob and they were hungry. They were hungry. Now, it's not that they they felt like having a snack. You get it? Okay. They had no food. They were away from home. They were away from the market. They had no food. They were hungry. And there was only one source of food on hand for both of them. Now, there's no indication, though, that they were hungry unto death. That's not 
implied, even in the context. But they were hungry, and they had nothing on hand to meet their needs. Now, if David could eat the showbread, which was most holy to God and available only to the priests, the disciples could certainly eat grain gleaned on the Sabbath if their hunger necessitated it, just as it did for David. The idea is that the, 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 the peril of life, we could say, supersedes the law, even when that peril is not imminent. Yeah. The demands of the law, under certain circumstances, can and ought to be suspended. Now, there are Christian philosophers who disagree with this. And they say that God <clears throat> will never allow us to be in a position where we have to disobey one law in order to obey another. Some Christian philosophers even condemn the actions of, um, uh, I just forgot her name, Tramp for the, yeah, Corey Timboom, that they condemn her actions of lying to the Nazis uh, in order to hide the Jews. And they say that God would never uh, put you in a position where you have to break one law in order to obey another. But a question comes up here, but what was Ahimelech supposed to do? What was he supposed to do? God's people have always been required to guard human life, to protect it. And that's why we're so, so protective of the unborn and those that are most vulnerable among us. We cannot ignore the real needs of our fellow man. So the preservation of life was in the hands of Ahimelech. But then there was also the issue of the showbread, which could only be eaten by the priests according to the law. Ahimelech was required to preserve human life and he was to withhold the bread from those that were not among the sons of Aaron. So the question is, which law should he honor and which should he suspend? Which should he ignore, as it were? He cannot preserve human life and withhold the showbread. He must either leave David to his own peril or hand over the showbread. We see a similar dilemma with the midwives in Egypt in Exodus 1, where it wasn't just a matter of civil disobedience, which none of you have a problem with, <laughs> as the midwives disobeyed Pharaoh's command to kill the male newborns. The midwives spared the babies, and then they lied to Pharaoh about it to spare their own lives. Man, their dilemma was this. God's law forbids lying. God's law requires the protection of life, and God's law requires that we obey the governing authorities. Is there a dilemma there? There is. The midwives could either obey Pharaoh and kill the, the male babies, or they could disobey Pharaoh and spare the babies. They could tell Pharaoh the truth and be killed for it, or lie to Pharaoh to save their own lives. Yeah. What makes this dilemma a real dilemma is that Exodus 1 Verse 20 through 21, it says that the midwives feared God. And so God dealt well with the midwives and blessed them with families for what they did. Huh. You know, if there was no positive response from God for what the midwives did, we, can, we could just assume that the scriptures accurately recorded history and that's all there is to it. That's what they did. This is what happened. But we have this positive response from God. We have the midwives doing what they did because they feared God, and then God blessed them. So we have to kind of wrestle with the moral implications of all of that, don't we? 
They disobeyed the government by sparing the babies, and they lied to the king about how it all went down to spare their own lives. They could not obey Pharaoh and spare the babies, and they could not tell Pharaoh the truth and spare their own lives. All of these stories so far imply that there are times when the government should be disobeyed, not that we simply can disobey, but should. I would say that during COVID, we had a responsibility to disobey the government because the government does not have jurisdiction over the church. Okay? So we could say that under this particular, in this particular context, government authority did not apply. Okay? And uh, most of you were hip with that, and um, you're still among us today. Um, there are circumstances, and listen carefully, there are circumstances if we are innocent, it appears, when we can lie to save our own lives, or the lives of others. Another example is in Joshua 2 and 6. <clears throat> Rahab, the harlot, lied to the city officials to spare the Hebrew spies. And for her deed, she and her family were spared by God. And they were Canaanites. Under all normal circumstances, no Canaanite was to be incorporated into the Hebrew community. But an exception was made for Rahab and her family. And not only was she incorporated into the Hebrew community, she was incorporated into the tribe of Judah, and she became the great, 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 great grandmother of who? Of Jesus. Rahab is also honored as a person of faith and a person of works in Hebrews 11.31 and James 2.25. So there are circumstances where God's law is superseded by a higher principle. Okay? In all of these stories, the higher principle is always the preservation of life. Okay, so we can't go at this willy-nilly, right? Yeah. The law that condemns lying was superseded by the higher principle of saving the lives of the midwives and the spies. The law that requires obedience to the government was suspended to save the lives of the babies. And in Matthew 12, the sabbatical law that forbid working on the Sabbath was suspended for the preservation of life. Now, it wouldn't surprise me if that rubs a few of you pretty raw, um, but I'm only presenting the scriptures to you. Uh, I would love to have some uh, moral wrestling and reasoning with you over this, and I think that it should be always wrestled with in a healthy manner, because I think the days are coming when we're going to be confronted with this again and again and again uh, in things that are uh, more concerning than COVID, uh, issues of a more moral, uh, with more moral gravity. And so, you know, I think that COVID and the government's intrusion and all that took not just the church by surprise, but many theologians. And many good thinkers were kind of scrambling to figure out how do we honor God's word and how do we honor the government in all of this? And so I think the more that we wrestle with these issues, the more we'll be ready when it comes down the pipe. Amen? I don't ever want to be put in that position. But if I am, I want to make sure that I'm biblically informed so that I can honor God above all things when it happens. And uh, so we need to look at this stuff closely and I think frequently or often rather. Yeah, it's good stuff. There's more examples in the scriptures, but that's not really the scope this morning. But what can I, I can say this. Jesus made no error, right? Jesus made no error 
when he allowed his disciples to eat that grain. No, no, no. He made no error when he allowed them to harvest, okay, thresh and winnow and eat that grain on the Sabbath. Amen? Yeah. But Jesus isn't done with these guys. If you've accused someone publicly of a capital crime, uh, you better be ready for more chastisement if you're wrong. He says, or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Again, Jesus says, have you not read? Okay, of course they had. They just hadn't made the correlation. So again, it's time for them to be the student of Christ. The Sabbath law, of course, forbid the people of Israel to do any work on the Sabbath, but the priests, they worked from before sunup till sundown on the Sabbath day in the, in the temple, every Sabbath, and they were not guilty of breaking the Sabbath. Every Sabbath, they had to do the morning and evening sacrifice. They had to offer the two lambs, Numbers 28.9. They had to present the grain offering, Numbers 28.9. And they had to bake the showbread. Nobody else was allowed to bake on the Sabbath. Leviticus 24 and chapter 5, verse 8. And then the dis- there's a discussion about it in 1 Chronicles 9.32. They were exempt from keeping the Sabbath. For them, there's just no violation of it. Now, this is interesting. This is not the conclusion of Jesus' defense. He's not rested his case. Look at this. Yet I say to you that in this place, there is one greater than the temple. Jesus could have rested his case earlier with the example of David and the showbread, but he just, he just pushes it with these guys. This, this, this adds something to Jesus' identity and why his disciples were exempt from the Sabbath law in this particular circumstance. Jesus is saying that he is greater than the temple. This declaration can only mean one thing. The only one greater than the temple is the one that is worshipped there. What do you think is going through the Pharisees' minds? (laughs) Yeah. You know, there's other ways of saying that you are God than just coming out and saying it. This is one of them. And just as the priests were exempt from the Sabbath law because they were serving God in the temple, the disciples were exempt from the Sabbath law because they were serving Christ in the ministry of the gospel. Yeah. I'm sure that the Pharisees' blood was boiling. Yeah. Jesus just said that he is the true object of Jewish worship and that his disciples are the servants of Yahweh. He's getting after it. Okay. Things are heating up. And then he says to them, but if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. If you had known. Three rebukes. Yep, three rebukes. It's not that they weren't aware of the principle, they just failed to practice it. They condemned the guiltless, which made them actually the guilty ones. The quotation comes from uh, Hosea chapter 6. And the historical context there had to do with a time when the Jews were careful to bring their sacrifices to the temple and obey a host of similar regulations, but they lacked mercy for their fellow man. The interesting thing is that, you know, mercy was an attribute of God that Israel got to enjoy frequently, didn't they? They were a wayward and rebellious people, and God, just time after time, he was merciful to them. It was high time for them to be like God and and treat their neighbors with a little mercy. 
And, and historically, the, the Pharisees were known for being merciless, mercy-free. They, they would essentially <clears throat> interpret the law so strictly that it was never any trouble finding someone in violation of it. And what they would do is they would, they would go out into public sniffing out people's sins. They would nitpick and they would major on all of the minors just so that they could bring an accusation, just so they could accuse, exposing every infraction without any regard for people's weaknesses, for people's pain or struggles. They were mean about it, self-righteous. All the while, they missed the heart of God in the matter, that he desired mercy and not just sacrifice, compassion before rigid rule-keeping. And then Jesus concludes with this. He says, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is great. To settle the issue of his disciples' innocence in regard to the Sabbath, Jesus declares himself to be Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is saying that any violation of the Sabbath would have to be settled by him because he's the Lord of it. I'm the one that decides these matters. So he's both greater than the temple and he's Lord of the Sabbath. It's just oozing with deity, oozing with deity. As I said before, there's more than one way to declare one's own deity. (laughs) This is just another way. As we've said before, people say, you know, you have to turn to the book of John to find any declaration of Jesus' deity. That is so uninformed. Jesus is shouting his deity with these statements. Every Jew understood what he meant by this. Yeah. It's important to understand that Christ was not simply appointed as Lord of the Sabbath. He is Lord of the Sabbath. Okay. All matters concerning the Sabbath are ultimately settled by him. Also, it is the Lord of the Sabbath who originally prescribed it. Don't you love that? It's the Lord of the Sabbath who originally prescribed it in Exodus 16.23. Yeah. And because Christ is the giver of the Sabbath, he gets to decide what the proper practice of the Sabbath is. He gets to decide what is and what is not a violation of it. And his original intent for giving the Sabbath was not to make people go hungry on that day. His intent was to bless people with a day of rest from all their work. It wasn't meant to punish people who had no food. It's very interesting. If the disciples had food in their knapsack and they were gleaning the fields on the Sabbath, this would be another thing, but they didn't have food. They were without food. They were hungry. There's no occasion to condemn. It was an occasion to show mercy. One more theological matter to address here as well. Jesus' statement is once again preceded by the Son of Man. The Son of Man. This is the second time that Jesus has said directly that he is the Son of Man and then attached to it a claim of deity. Earlier in Matthew 9, 6, just before he healed the paralytic, Jesus said to the Pharisees, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power, that is, authority on earth to forgive sins. I'm doing this so that you might know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. Only, what did the Pharisees say when Jesus said to the paralytic, "Um, take care, he says, your sins are forgiven you. They said, why does this man blaspheme? For only God can forgive sins. And Jesus just agrees with them. You're absolutely right. So he has the authority to forgive sins. He's also the Lord of the Sabbath. He's not concealing his identity and his authority from these 
Pharisees. And I think that it, it needs to be also observed here that in revealing his identity to them, there's a very strong warning. You guys need to be very careful about how you speak to me. You need to understand who you're dealing with. You need to understand this. You're trying to sabotage, you're trying to undermine the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who's greater than the temple, the one who has authority to forgive sins on earth. You're treading on very dangerous ground. And so far, Jesus has exercised great mercy toward them. But I think it's waning. It's waning. Let's move on. Now, when he departed from there, he went into their synagogue. Now, in Matthew's gospel, this is the first time that the synagogue has been mentioned, okay? Now, the synagogue was the secondary meeting house of the Jew. For corporate worship and sacrifice and for the feast of the Lord, the Jews met at the temple there in Jerusalem. But in their hometowns, the Jews met in their local synagogue every Sabbath for the reading of scripture, for preaching, for worship, and all of that. Now, the interesting thing about the Sabbath is that by this time in history, it was relatively new. Some people think that the synagogue has always been a part of Jewish life. It's not. It it hasn't been. It's relatively new by the time the first century rolls around. The, the, The concept of the synagogue was not prescribed in the law of Moses, and and neither was it prescribed later by the prophets, meaning it was not God's idea. The synagogue was invented by the Jews shortly before the first century. So it was a matter of tradition, not scripture. Okay, And, And pay attention to this. The idea of meeting on the Sabbath for the reading of scripture, teaching, and worship was also new. Where do you read in the Old Testament, in the Law or the Prophets, that the Sabbath was for the reading of Scripture, worship, and teaching? What was the Sabbath prescribed for? For rest. That's right. It wasn't prescribed for those things. I'm not saying that it's wrong to do those things on that day, but it was not prescribed by God. No synagogue and no such tradition. Okay? The Sabbath was prescribed for the Jews to rest. So the whole concept of the synagogue and the day they met on was an invention of the Jews. It came out of tradition. So the funny thing to consider is if a Jew never attended the synagogue on the Sabbath or any other day of the week, he would not be in violation of God's word. He would violate the rabbinical traditions, but not the Bible. And therefore, it would not be a sin for him to avoid the synagogue. But by the time the first century came around, the tradition of the synagogue was so entrenched in Jewish culture that if you did not attend, you were looked down upon because every good Jew went to the synagogue, okay? You could become a social outcast for not abiding by that tradition. Now, Jesus went to the synagogue, not because he had to, but because that's where the people were that he was trying to reach. And in fact, when we get into the book of Acts, it was, it was Paul's custom to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath, not because he had to, because he wanted to preach the gospel to the Jew first. It was, a, it was another tradition. It was the way Paul did it. Okay? But what about the church? Why do we meet on Sunday? Because it's the new Sabbath? Please say no. Okay, good. It's not the new Sabbath. You can't find that anywhere in the scriptures. We meet on Sunday for a couple of reasons. It's the day that Christ rose from the dead, right? And it's the day that the apostles gathered the church together for teaching, fellowship, 
breaking of bread for prayer and for worship. And then by the end of the first century, the Sunday was considered the Lord's day, the Lord's day. It's his day to have all of us together for his purposes, okay? All right, let's get back to our story. And behold, there in the synagogue was a man who had a withered hand, and they asked him, saying, they asked Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Is that a real question? (laughs) That they might accuse him. Now, so this man is there, he has a withered hand. Don't know why, was he born with it? Is it nerve damage? Doesn't say, but he's there in the synagogue. And as strange as it sounds, the Pharisees asked Jesus if it was lawful to heal on the Sabbath. In other words, or would a man have to wait until the next day? And we know this isn't an inquiry, it was a trap. They're just looking for evidence that they might use against Jesus. Now, this whole scene, I mean, it's just so interesting to me because they knew that Jesus had the power to heal the man and they knew that he would heal the man. Why do you try to trap somebody like that? Why don't you inquire about who are you? How is it that you have the, the authority and the power to, to heal? What, this is, it's just so crazy and they're, and they're, they're so envious of him. Now, it, it's actually true that according to rabbinical tradition, it was unlawful to heal on the Sabbath day. Listen to this. It's, it's in the Talmud. Just in case somebody comes along, it's none of us, by the way, that can heal people, they're not allowed to heal on the Sabbath. What kind of a person comes up with a regulation like that? Who does that kind of thing? It's stupid. And Jesus is quick to point it out. Then he said to them, what man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? And how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Does that need any commentary? Every one of these Pharisees in the room, if one of their sheep fell into a pit on the Sabbath day, they would, in their minds, justify breaking the Sabbath to pull that sheep out of the pit. And yet, when it came to a human being that was experiencing true suffering, they would say, you have to wait until tomorrow. I'm not going to lift my hand, even if I had the power to do it, to help you. That is absolutely crazy. So this example here, Jesus demonstrates that, yeah, it's obviously good to do good on the Sabbath day. It's permissible. It's always about human need. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the others. He certainly didn't object to receiving a miracle on the Sabbath. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against Jesus how they might destroy him. That is how they might kill him or get him essentially executed. All right. This is so insane, isn't it? It's crazy. They hate Jesus because he's so good. They hate him because he's so right. He has proven them wrong since verse one in all of these different cases. And instead of coming to their senses, they are looking toward his demise. Jesus was too good for them. Now, because of the type of men that they were, they could not receive rebuke, right? Jesus rebuked them through the whole section. And good men, good women receive rebuke. Amen? It might take 24 hours to accept it as such. Wounds from a friend. 
but they've had time. And uh, Jesus gave them three and a half years and they failed to do so. But they were worthy of rebuke. They needed rebuke. They needed correction. But instead of seeing it for what it was and repenting, they just became more angry, more envious. And Jesus gave them less and less mercy as time went on. So what should we take home from this? Well, I think two things. As Matthew has been clearly trying to show us that Jesus is the Lord God Almighty. Okay, we've been just kind of keeping track of that as we've gone through Matthew's gospel. It, we need to understand exactly who Jesus is. Okay? He is the one with authority to forgive sin. He is the, the object of true worship. He's Lord of the Sabbath. He's God in the flesh. Okay? We need to understand that. We need to recognize it and worship Jesus accordingly, exactly as, as he is. But then the other thing is, is, as Jesus quoted Hosea, God desires mercy and not sacrifice. Now, I don't think that we have a culture of legalism and nitpicking and majoring on minors here. Okay? We try to send them, those people, down the street. Okay? We try to exercise some mercy toward them at first, but then we, we help them out of here. Okay? Th- that whole thing was quoted in response to the Pharisees because they were making the word of God say more than what God meant in his word, which made it appear that there was no room for mercy in the context of the Sabbath, okay? And therefore, because of their, you know, their rigid interpretation of the law, there was, there was only condemnation. But that was not the intent of the commandment. Jesus quoted the same passage from Hosea in Matthew 9.13, when the Pharisees were being critical of Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors. You see, that kind of person, all they can see is compromise. But Jesus was on a mission of compassion to rescue the lost. You see, those without mercy cannot see beyond the letter of the law to the needs of their fellow man, whether that need is physical or spiritual. And seeing the needs of our fellow man is not to be confused with being permissive of sin. You understand? We can be merciful and compassionate and still address sin. And we must. It's not a compromise of God's word. It's just called being merciful. Mercy looks into a matter before it judges too quickly and too harshly, okay? It offers help before condemnation. Mercy seeks to be understanding. You know, rigid rule keepers are like sheepdogs. When they see a sheep wandering from the fold, all they see is the violation and the discipline needed to make them comply. But what the sheepdog fails to see is that the sheep is injured, lame, blind, or weak. You understand? All they see is violation. They don't see why there might be violation or what brought things to this violation. They, they ignore context. They ignore need. Jesus saw need. He knew that they were all sinners. Haven't we come to that realization? When we look in the mirror, when we look at others, have we not come to the realization that there's a context to sin? There's no excuse for it, but there's reasons for it. What led to this? Mercy tries to find out. People can be so consumed with the rules of religion that everything is a violation to them. They can get so caught up in the rituals and the routine of the letter that they overlook their neighbor's needs, their struggles, their pain. And often those people leave and they never come back. Again, mercy and compassion do not compromise God's word. They don't make allowances for sin. They just take into consideration the person 
the sinner, their pain, their struggles. And then a positive attempt is made to help them to recover them. You know, what comes to mind, what would come to mind if, if a young girl confessed to you that she had an abortion? Would it just be the violation? Or would we take into account that our culture has robbed her of being able to think clearly about abortion? That she's been duped into this. She's potentially been pressured. Maybe she's been threatened. Yes, a violation has definitely occurred. But are we, but that violation has, it's over with. Now, how do we reach that person and recover them with the gospel? What, what comes to mind initially when a friend comes to us and says that they struggle with same-sex attraction, that they're tempted in that way, or that they've given in to it? Yes, in that circumstance, a violation has occurred. But do we overlook the fact that they're crying out to us and they're looking for a way out? They're looking for help, compassion, wisdom. I mean, what would you do? What would you think if a Christian friend of yours was entertaining progressive ideology? Would you immediately condemn them or would you try to reason with them to bring them back to rational thinking? I guarantee that mercy and compassion are far more winsome than being rigid and just pointing out violations. Okay, amen? Go ahead and stand up and let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we want to beware of Phariseeism in our own hearts, Lord, self-righteousness. And Lord, we want, to see, we want to see people rather than just their violation. Lord, you've given us the ministry of reconciliation, that regardless of what someone has done, you've called us to be that agent by which we might turn them back to you. You want to recover them, and you want us to have that same heart. I think it's safe to say that if Christ were present in the flesh with us today, that he would have gathered around him many of the people that we despise. And Lord, hopefully we wouldn't be like the Pharisees and be critical and condemn. But Lord, nothing has changed. You still desire mercy and not sacrifice. And so Lord, help us to be filled with compassion for people. Help us to not make excuses for sin, definitely not to excuse it, but to look to the person and how we might rescue them, Lord. um, Yeah. And Lord, I do pray that as you have been so uh, careful to point out your deity, that you are God in the flesh. Lord, you are no other. And for people to be saved, to, to be redeemed, they must come to the realization that you weren't just a good man, you weren't just a prophet, but you were God as man. And so Lord, help us to see you rightly so that we might worship you rightly. Thank you, Lord. We love you. Lord, I thank you for my church family. And uh, just pray that together, Lord, that you would just make us more like you, that we'd be more well-pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's keep worshiping.